Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit one million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top 5% of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Richie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode and don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts. So take a step back, take another step back, take another step back. I just feel like we need to say this at the start of our first episode, you know, because if people are crowding the stage while we're jamming, you know, the people up front, they're, they're not going to be able to breathe. Don't you think? That's right. Is that a good precaution? Yeah. I mean, but I, I figure people are, are, are crushing each other to get at this. <laughs> I think so. Did you listen, uh, by the way, to the... Uh, the banter at the start of this show on the audience tape. Maybe we can get into oh. it when we're more fully into it, but it has <laughs> it has excellent good banter. No, you mean like on the unedited? Yeah, on the odd version of this show. On the archive. No, not really. I, I listened to a soundboard show on Relisten that didn't really have much uh, 
much patter, so I, I miss the patter. Uh, I'll like, send it to you. Patter. It's really good. Oh uh, man, let's talk about it when we're like really, really rolling. Okay. Well, this is thirty-six from the vault. I'm Stephen Hyden. And I'm Rob Mitchum. It, yes, and uh, that was kind of the tuning up part of the of the podcast, I think, right there. You know, because it's like if we're doing a Grateful Dead podcast, you can't be like too polished in the introduction. You know, I feel like you gotta have like we're wandering out stage on stage, tuning up the guitars, maybe waving to the audience a little bit. Yeah, but it's and- part of building the anticipation of the show. And like if you're doing like a real field recording, you know, you're gonna include this part of the show on the tape. You know, this adds to the authenticity of it. Right. We get like three notes in and an amp blows out and one of us has to tell like a corny dad joke while a bunch of like like extremely burnt out crew members scramble to patch some wires together. It's it's the really authentic that- experience. Yeah, that's what that's what you know you, you kill for when you're listening to the dead. Although it's interesting, we're gonna get it get into this in our in, in this episode that like when you compare you know some of the like field recordings to like the officially released recordings, you lose some of that stuff. It's not quite as like unpolished as you like might imagine that it is. You know, unless you kind of you know, dig in deep into the tapes. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, we'll get into it, but part of the story of the Dick's Pick series is that it took them a while to get comfortable enough to show that sort of warts and all Grateful Dead that you get on the bootlegs. So in this in this show, in, in this series, we're going to be talking about Dick's Picks, and, and, and Dick's Picks is this, like, series of 36 live albums that the Dead put out. And it started in the early 90s, and it went into like the well into the 2000s, didn't it? I mean, didn't it wrap up like uh, like 2010, 2012 or so? That is a great question, Steve. Right off the bat, you've stumped <laughs> stumped your co-host. 2005 is when the Dick's Pick series ended, which is uh, long after okay. the uh, titular Dick had left this world. So uh, now they've moved into Dave's Picks, of course. Uh what are right. chosen by uh, David this, Lemieux, the current archivist. But yeah, 36 volumes of Dick's Picks running between 1993 and 2005. Uh, and yeah, I guess like uh, this is a series to talk about them. And uh, Steve, I'd be interested in your answer to this as well. But um, I think the reason why it's interesting to go through the Dick's Picks is, you know, for one, I, I think we both agree that the Grateful Dead are basically the great American rock band. And also one of the weirdest yes. American rock bands. They're both simultaneously, which is great. Yes. Uh, and really the best way to appreciate I, both of those things is the Dick's Pick series. More so, I think, 
than their studio albums. So there's a lot of great Grateful Dead studio albums. Uh, and also the official live albums, which are often really good, uh, but are, you know, a little bit inauthentic. They're a little bit uh, staged in some ways that we'll get into. Uh, so just kind of trawling through the Dick's Pick series is the best way to get an appreciation for the dead and is also just a fun way to kind of skate around rock history between sort of, you know, mid to late 60s and early to mid 90s. Well, and I feel like we should talk a little bit because we're going to get in. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Dick's Picks Volume 1, a show from the Hickson, the Hickson like Civic Center. Did I get that whole title? The Curtis Hickson Convention Center, Convention Hall. In Tampa, Florida, December 19th, 1973. It's volume one. We're starting at the beginning. But I feel like we should talk a little bit about Dick himself for the people out there who may not know who he is. Because this guy basically had right. like... Because from what I understand, Dick was a guy, he lived in Hawaii and he just got high all day long and he listened to Grateful Dead tapes. I mean, wasn't that his life, basically? Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that seems pretty accurate. And I'll say, like, most of what I know about Dick Latvala is from a few sources that I'll credit just off the top. Uh, Jesse Jarno's Heads, which is a really great book about not just the Grateful Dead, but the whole sort of psychedelic underground scene. Uh, Dick is one of the most like colorful characters in that book. Uh, there's some really great nerdy... Grateful Dead essay blogs on the internet that look like they were created back when like blogging was this hot new technology. Uh, they're usually hosted on blogspot.com to this day. Uh, one's called Dead Essays, one's called Lost Live Dead and Hooter Rollin'. Um, yeah, there's some really great stuff there about Dick. And I, I mean, I think you're right. He was, he didn't go to a ton of dead shows. He lived in Hawaii, he grew pot, uh, and he became just like an obsessive tape collector right around the time that scene became a thing uh, through like the early days of relics and mail order and stuff like that. Uh, and he would just like obsessively collect tapes. Eventually he got in with the dead organization, uh, mostly by trading that supposedly really good pot that he was growing in Hawaii uh, for sort of access to the band and the crew and eventually access to tapes. Uh, he joined up with the organization as like a gopher, essentially, at first. He's listed as a caterer on one of the 80s albums. Uh, and really, sort of the legend goes, he was playing a mixtape he had made of like his favorite early dead cuts in the Grateful Dead office uh, to a coworker. And Phil Lesh walked by the door, heard this guy playing all this old dead music and talking about it like super reverently and uh you know enthusiastically uh and phil went in and listened to this three-hour mix that dick had made and a few weeks later he was hired to be the the archivist for the band which is in like 1985 mid-80s um which at the time was kind of like i mean it was a dream job for dick lefala but it was also like a kind of a ridiculous job because the dead vault with big air quotes around it was kind of a room in a warehouse where they had just like thrown all their tapes from 20 years of playing at that point uh nothing was really labeled properly or very few things were and so he had to just kind of go in at first and just catalog the entire collection and do a bunch of detective work and listen to tapes that had no labels figure out the set list 
try and cross-index that with what setlist fans had collected, figure out what dates those shows were played on, all this like sort of grunt work. Uh, and he just did that for years and years because it wasn't until 1991, I believe, that they actually, the dead organization figured out, hey, you know, we could probably make a little bit of money out of all these shows we have stored up, like hundreds and hundreds of shows, uh, and started the From the Vault series, uh, which was sort of the predecessor to Dick's Picks. And that's that 1975 show with the awesome Bill Graham introduction. Exactly. Like, like and they go into uh, Help on the Way, and which is like one of my all-time favorite like openings to like a Grateful Dead live record. I think like that, that the introduction, and then they slam into that song. I think that opening might be the is like one of the coolest things. I think that's the high watermark of Dead professionalism, like in their entire career, <laughs> the way that they like vamp underneath Bill Graham, and then they hit the song right after he f- finishes it to the introduction. It's like that they never got more slick than that. <laughs> like, yeah, that that yeah, that's like. That's the closest that they got to like James Brown type precision. Exactly. Like in that introduction. That was the one time. They, they were never like that on the mark. It was the one time um, they did that, and, so they had to release it as an official live recording. So, you know, obviously people were trading tapes, you know, before the Dead started putting out these, you know, vault albums, but the Dead themselves hadn't really monetized it to the degree that they would eventually be monetizing it, like where they would be putting out basically bootlegs themselves. Right. Um, and, and, Dick's Picks is kind of the, you know, they like you said, they put out the, the, the vault records, but like Dick's Picks is sort of like an official series that says we're going to be doing this on a regular basis. And they end up putting out this show from 1973 first, although it's not the full show. In fact, there's a lot missing from this show and the way that they represent the show on the album is kind of weird because things are out of out of order um yeah and i think there's a lot of sort of interesting historical reasons for why it came out like that and part of it is how resistant the dead were to putting out um these types of tapes early on uh you know officially commercially uh like the from the vault series both of those the one from the vault and two from the vault are both multi-track recordings so like the record company had actually sent out like an official like truck basically to record it professionally with engineers and everything uh but most of the tapes they had in the vault were two track recordings that the band had just recorded themselves that usually like their sound man at the time had like patched out of the board and recorded on a reel-to-reel uh so the quality wasn't like quite as high as like a lot of the multi-track recordings um so they were worried about putting out what they considered to be inferior products uh audio quality wise uh, at that time um the the band also really does not like to listen to themselves or, or they didn't at that time and i'm sure they still do not in fact i i know for a fact they still are not involved in archival releases um and so they and whenever they do listen to old music they just find like a bunch of things to criticize about it so they didn't want to put out like full shows from the past they thought that that would be like uh not up to sort of par with like their you know the the official recorded output they had done up to that point um and then if they did want to put something out they didn't want to make it more than two cds they thought it would be like crazy to put out a set that was more than two CDs long, which says a lot, I think, not just about the dead, but about like what the live album was at the time when the Dick's Pick series started. Like today, 
like bands will just put out complete shows like nothing i mean a lot of times it's digital downloads instead of cds but like now a days especially in like the jam band scene you're so used to having complete shows come out officially from the band like you know within an hour of the show ending uh but back then at the time like a live album was still like I guess considered to be a little bit more of a, like a precious property that you like assembled from a bunch of shows or did a bunch of post-production work afterwards and put out with nice packaging. And that's not what Dick wanted to do with his Dick's Pick series at all. He just wanted to put out like raw music from the archives. Well, and it is worth remembering how strange it would be for a band in 1993 to put out just like an unedited concert and you hit upon that about sort of the standards for what live concerts were but you know just think about where the dead were at that point you know jerry garcia was still alive obviously they were still a touring band there really wasn't another band of a similar stature doing what the grateful dead was doing obviously fish was uh, ascendant at that point but you know they had not quite hit you know that sort of arena band status that they would kind of achieve in the mid nineties. They were just about to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, Pearl Jam hadn't done their thing. Like where they put out like 80 live albums of their entire tour, you know, like which they did, I think in 2000. Uh, So the idea that, you know, which now we would look at this and say, well, why didn't they just put out the entire show? But it's like the fact that they were even putting out these shows at all, it was kind of a revolutionary thing in the early 90s um, and probably could have only been done by the Grateful Dead at that time. Right. Um, and, and they even had to like kind of strong arm their record label. Uh, they were on Arista at the time and Arista was like, why should you put out a bunch of stuff and compete with the albums we're putting out? Uh, and Arista basically made them only do like a 25,000 copy run and only sell it through their mail order service at the time. So they pretty much had obstacles all over the place to starting a series like this, or I should say Dick had obstacles in putting these out um, early on. And we could talk a little bit about like even the band, how difficult it was to get a show approved by the band, which in this case was pretty much entirely Phil. Phil was the only one who cared um, to pick a, to even like approve a show to be released under this, you know, sort of lower under the radar series. Well, and as we get into this series and we hit some of, you know, the you know like certainly like the next dicks pick that we're going to be doing you know volume two is like severely cut down like that's only that's like a single disc release i think there's probably seven songs on there or so um so that's severely cut down this show uh and we'll get into this while we you know a little bit later in this episode but yeah i think that they were able to get the meat of the show on the album like there's a lot of good stuff that they didn't put on but i don't think there's anything essential that they left off i think like the great parts of that show made it to the release um but what i think is fascinating about dick's picks and like why i wanted to do this this series is because i think this was an example of a band kind of allowing the shadow history of their music to become sort of the the history history you know for it not to just be something that tape traders you know shared amongst themselves but to actually be kind of at the forefront of like how people understand this music and i can say that's true for me because um the first dicks picks 
record that I ever bought was actually volume one. I remember buying it at a UCD store in Milwaukee. I think it was a disco round in like the mid 2000s. And it was around the time that I was starting to really get into the Grateful Dead. And the roadblock for me always with the dead was that I went to their studio albums first because that is typically how you get into a band. Like you look at their most important releases, you know, you like you read about it online or something or you read about it in a book and then you check out those records. But with The Dead, a lot of their studio records like aren't that great or they're great songs, but like they're not presented in like the best way to hear them. And the official live records that The Dead put out, um, I guess I'm thinking specifically of like things like Europe 72. I'm not sure to, to the to the degree that like Live Dead was like overdubbed, but certainly like Europe 72 is sort of like a live record that is uh, dramatically massaged, shall we say? I mean, that's like pretty overdubbed. I mean, it's the, and when you listen to it, it doesn't sound terribly live. I mean, it sounds pretty smooth when you mm. listen to it. Yeah, it's mostly about, in the vocals, I think. They did a lot of vocal work after the right. fact. But even like the performances, like there's not like a ton of jamming on that record. I mean, it, it is more like a song-oriented live record. And the mm-hmm. songs are wonderful. Like it's a great record. I love Europe 72. But there was something about the Dix Picks uh, series and, and hearing this record in particular that really kind of connected with me Uh I think because of the rawness of it and there was and also the fact that it sounded better than like a lot of like audience tapes that I had heard, you know, just kind of downloading from like live archive and stuff. It sounded better than that, but it didn't sound as good as like a regular live record. It was a good kind of happy medium of like sonic quality, which is really kind of like the perfect sonic quality for me as far as the Grateful Dead goes. And uh, you know, we'll get into this later in the episode, but like I realized revisiting this album that like there's probably two or three songs on here that are like the definitive versions of for me of those songs. And maybe it's just because I heard this record and it kind of made me love the Grateful Dead and and want to like learn more about them. So I don't know if they're necessarily necessarily like the best performed versions of the songs, but like they were the song they were the versions that hit me at the right time and were very sort of formative for me in terms of like loving this band. I also have to say uh, 1973 has like kind of always been my favorite Grateful Dead year. And I wonder to what degree hearing this album in particular sort of influenced that opinion. I mean, as we get into this series and we hear other Dick's picks, 1973 is like well-represented in the Dick's Pick series. I should say, by the way, too, that like I'm a collector of Dick's Pick CDs. So uh, I think I own all but maybe, I think there's like probably six or seven that I don't own. And I wanted to do this podcast so I can justify spending hundreds of dollars to buy the remaining ones that I don't have because I feel like I can chalk that up to like a podcast expense. You know, we can, I think I can expense that to Osiris. If I spend like if I spend like two hundred hours on like volume like uh, th- there's like a there's like a there's like a six disc set that is like it's from May of seventy seven and it's like a sh- it's like a show in Atlanta and I think the show after yeah. that that is like 
think it's twenty nine. Right? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, something like that. It's like two hundred, two hundred fifty dollars. But I think since we're doing the show, I, I can expense that to Osiris. So I think I'm going to do that. Uh, right? Is that really what the is? That's really what that costs on like a like a secondhand market. Well, some of them, yeah, cost hundreds of dollars now. I mean, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, if you go on eBay and you're patient, you can find. Uh, most of them for like thirty to forty dollars, like that's a pretty good price. But some of the like really rare ones are like hundreds of dollars. But again, wow, we've got that Osiris money with us now, so I feel like uh, it's I'm living on Easy Street. I feel like I'm gonna be like swimming in dicks picks. Which, by the way, when you talk about dicks picks now too, like there was no way they could they could have known in the early '90s that like when you talk about dicks picks now, it sounds like you're like a pervert, you know, it's like taking out a totally right. different connotation. So we have to be careful with how we talk about these things. And yeah, so listeners <laughs> should know how many uh, like names we went through for this podcast before. Well, I had to tell my wife settling on one that couldn't be misinterpreted or like was going to be something that we didn't want to say. You know, like have ourselves on the record saying repeatedly. Yeah, I mean, just telling my wife that I was recording this, I was like, yeah, I'm talking to my friend Rob about dicks picks. You know, it's not something you can really say to your wife and, uh, you know, without some further explanation. You know, it's pretty tricky. Yeah, no, my seven-year-old was looking over my shoulder when I was doing some research <laughs> and asked me, what is dick? <laughs> so that's <laughs> what I'm way, dealing with on our side. Do you have a favorite dead year? As I said, I, I think I'm 73 is, is my number one. Do you have a favorite dead year, by the way? You know, I really don't. It's funny. Like, I've never really settled on one. I know that's like the worst possible answer to this question on a dead podcast, but it's like, I, I mean, I definitely have like a range that I stick to and this is going to be a long running theme with this series, I think, uh, which, you know, pretty much runs like 68 to 78 and I don't go outside of that very often, but within oh, yeah. that, there's not really like a year that, that I, I go to again and again and say, yes, this is, this is the dead. I mean, if, if like gun to my head, I might also pick 73, 74, um, for a lot of reasons we'll talk about in this episode, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, yeah there's not, there's not really like one episode that I am just like, we'll go to the mat for or one, one year I'm, that I'll go to the mat for. I'm so excited to get into like the eighties with you because I know the eighties are not like your your jam at all with the dead so you know when we get to the brent years and we're talking about like you know like the silky silky crazy nights of the 80s uh yeah it, it's it's gonna be good man i'm, I'm excited because you know i got because i am an 80s person i was gonna say that i think my second favorite year and this is gonna sound like i'm a contrarian but it also has to do with like shows that i heard early on that were formative for me i'm a big 1991 person because I heard I heard a bunch of spring 1991 shows early on, and you know, like there's uh, there's a show from Greensboro, I think, which is like 3:30:91. There's like an Orlando show, which I think is 4:8:91. Hornsby was playing with them, and it's awesome, man. There's not a lot of 90s in Dick's Picks. I think there's only like maybe three or so. Um, yeah. But we hit the 80s with, with volume five. So it's going to get silky, man. It's going to be hey, some silky, I'm, silky, crazy nights coming up, man. I'm, I, I can't I'm, wait. I'm excited for it, too, because, like, you know, I, I, if, if left to my own devices, I will just go back 
to 68 to 78 over and over and over again. So getting me out of my comfort zone is good. I want to hear some other stuff. And I think it should be said, you know, I don't I don't think Dick particularly liked the 90s very much. That's that's the sense I got. I mean, they didn't get into the 90s until after he died, I think. <laughs> so I think that's that's pretty good proof that he wasn't that wild about it. Though there's probably also reasons why. I mean, they didn't want to release like contemporaneous live shows, I guess, in this series when the dead were still a going operation. Yeah, I mean, there was no distance from it. I mean, they were starting in the early 90s, so I'm sure it was like when you could still see the dead with Jerry, you know, it was probably not mm-hmm. as interesting to listen to like shows that are only like a year or two old. It was probably more fun to dig up something from the 70s or the 80s. Um, right. So. And, and I, but what I'll say is that for the, you know, the 80s shows that Dick picked and for the 90s shows that David Lemieux picked after Dick was gone, like those are two guys whose ears I trust. Like part of what's like so magical about this series is that like being such huge tape collector nerds, the two of them, uh, they understand the dead way better than the dead understand themselves. Right. And so having that sort of voice, come into the dead organization and start releasing music the way that like dead fans understand the dead versus how like Phil Lesh understands the dead or, you know, the rest of the band who like couldn't be bothered with looking back at what they did 20 years ago. Uh, that's the real revolutionary thing here is that you talked about sort of the shadow history versus the official history. Like the dead, I think are a band where like the shadow history is the one to trust and the keepers of the shadow history were, you know, the tape collectors, the tape traders, the people that were like obsessively listening to night after night and finding little gems here and there that the band themselves don't even remember playing or don't care if they did. It's it's so funny. I feel like that's true for all of these like old lions of like, you know, rock that they kn- they don't have any clue like what's good about themselves. Like I, that's true of like Bob Dylan for sure. I I feel like that's probably true of Neil Young to some degree. Um, although Neil Young seems more involved in archiving his own work than like yeah. Dylan and the Dead do, like because like because mm-hmm. Dylan has no idea like what's good about himself. I don't think, you know. I mean, there's so many great things that he did not put out that it was up to archivists to put on. You know, like, like I mean, his bootleg series, you know, being an example. I right. mean, which I guess is like the Dylan version of Dick's Picks. Um, mm-hmm. Like, there's so much great stuff that's come out through there that you know he would have buried, um, you know, if not for that. Um, I should say too that as this series unfolds, that we will have digressions because we are a jam band. Me and Rob are a jam band on this show, <laughs> so we're not just going to play a straight set. We're not playing the predictable volume one to volume two to volume three. We're going to be doing other dead live releases along the way. We're going to be touching on the official live records. We're going to be touching on Dave's picks. Uh, we're going to be touching on the solo work of founding Grateful Dead guitarist John Mayer. Uh, <laughs> which I okay, that's a joke, by the way, of course. But I am that's kind of the thing I'm most excited about. Like I'm excited to make you listen. I'm going to pick the longest John Mayer live record. And that's going to be the one that we do because there's a double. He's got like a lot of live records. But I'm gonna find I'm gonna because I I think I know what the longest one is and that's the one we're gonna do 
And I think that's going to be a great episode. <laughs> so that's something to look forward to at some like predetermined or, or actually not predetermined time. Um, so I hope you're excited about that. I'm excited to go I think through that journey with we you. We really got to make, we got to come up with uh, some sort of stakes here. That has to be like if I lose a bet. No, like, I mean, rather than just forcing this upon me, <laughs> John. And look, I, I'm going to go on the record. I I like John Mayer, and I and I I actually got into John Mayer because like through the Grateful Dead. I think I think him coming into this context, it kind of changed my mind a little bit, and it made me re-explore his uh, his back catalog. So I've become like an admirer of his of his work and his guitar playing. So I'm coming at it from like a genuine perspective, but like, I also will enjoy having you delve deep into at least one John Mayer live record because he is a pivotal part of this band's history now. Uh, so I feel like we're gonna have to touch on that at some point. So that's something to look forward to in the future. I know I'm looking forward to it, but yeah, there's lots of other live records uh, for us to talk about. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time, thinking... I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Before we get to all that, we have to start with volume one at the beginning of Dick's Picks. And like we said, this was a, this is a show from De- December 19th, 1973. And let's set the scene here. You know, like, let's give people an idea of like what it was like in the world when the dead played this show. Now, first of all, this was at the end of their 73 tour. They did two shows uh, at this venue. 
And I keep for, it, it's the Curtis Hickson, is it Civic Center or Convention Center? I have Curtis Hickson Hall here, but it was sort of like one of these typical like 60s, 70s, multi-purpose convention center type of venues. Like after the dead left, there was probably like a dog show or a, uh, right. you know, like a Shriners convention uh, the next day. Well, it's a, t- it's a Tampa, Florida. And Curtis Hickson, by the way, he was a former mayor of Tampa. He was he was mayor in the 40s and 50s. And, um, and by the way, I, you know, not to get too far afield here, but Curtis Hickson has an amazing Wikipedia page. It's not very long, but it just talks about how this guy was basically like a crooked mayor in Tampa. And there's a quote on his Wikipedia page where it talks about, because I, I guess someone wrote a book about like corruption in Florida, which I'm sure was a very, very long book. Um, <laughs> but it was just talked about how there was this, there was this quote from Curtis Hickson where he said that, any bribe up to $100,000 wasn't a big deal as long as there wasn't like murder or any kind of like real scandal involved. You know, so, you know, it, it, so th- that's what we're dealing with here. And, I, and I'm guessing like by Tampa standards, like that's not really that corrupt, probably. Yeah, you know, I was going to say by, uh, for Florida, gov- Florida mayors, that's like, that puts them near the top, right? The most ethical mayor. That's why you get a venue named after you. So, this is what this is what this, this hall is named after. Yeah, this hall was opened in '65. Jimi Hendrix played there twice in 1968. Uh, Derek and the Dominoes played there. It was like one of only two shows with Dwayne Allman at this at this venue in 1970, which would have been pretty amazing to see. And Janis Joplin played there. Uh, I guess David Bowie was there on the Diamond Dogs tour. So like there was a period like where this venue was like pretty happening. The Dead played there four times, uh, twice in 73. They played on December 18th and December 19th, the last two shows of the 73 tour. Then I believe they played again, I think it was, was it 78? I think once in Mm -hmm. 78, maybe once in 74. No, it's two Uh, non-consecutive shows in 1978. Okay, two in 78. Part of what I like about like this era of the Dead, both sort of early 70s and a little bit late 70s is when they did did play these sort of like random cities because i feel like in dead history you always imagine them playing like in san francisco or at the fillmore east they're playing in the winterland ballroom or like later on they're playing these big stadiums but there was a time when the dead were like sort of on the circuit where they had to play like just the other day you know before we were recording this a bunch of people online were celebrating the anniversary of a show in dekalb I'm like just imagining seeing the dead, you know, up the road from me here in Chicago, up in DeKalb, where there is, you know, nothing but Northern Illinois University. That that's that's pretty wild. <laughs> well, and, and one of the things I love about '73 is that uh, a lot of the shows that have that have come to prominence are like in the middle of the country, you know, so they're playing in Oklahoma city. They're playing in salt Lake yeah. city, you know, they're playing like in the middle of America and there is sort of like a dustiness to a lot of these shows. There's also kind of like an airiness or a mellowness to a lot of these shows too. I think this show in particular, the December 19th show and the show before it, uh, you know, both of these shows in Tampa are like pretty mellow to the point of like being almost like austere at times, um, mm-hmm. and I really like that. 
lane for the dead, you know, uh, where I feel like in the late 60s, they had that sort of great psychedelic energy to them where it's like pretty, it can be pretty ecstatic sounding. And Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. towards the end of the 70s into the 80s is like when they're starting to enter their like arena rock period. And then it becomes like a stadium rock thing. So uh, definitely getting kind of more blustery, you know, as they get older, uh, as they're playing these bigger venues. But there's sort of a delicacy to what they sound like in 73, again, I guess airiness, for lack of a better word, that I really, really like. Um, you might call it jazzy at times. Uh, mm-hmm. It kind of reminds... I, I mean, the dead always have like a country element to what they do, but there's something... I wouldn't call it country, but it, it has like a Western feel to it, to me, that really sucks me in. And I, and I just wonder... If, to what degree just where they were playing at this time, like influenced that it feels very sort of like out in America, out in the road, you know, we're like cowboys on the pasture, you know, type mm-hmm. type vibe to these shows. Yeah, no, absolutely. And getting back to the sort of, you know, thesis statement that the Grateful Dead are the greatest American band. I mean, to, to earn that title, you got to go pay your dues. <laughs> in the DeKalbs and Oklahoma cities and Tampas of the world and, you know, knock some people on their ass in these, like, sort of out-of-the-way areas. And, yeah, the other thing to bring up about these two shows, re- really weird tour itinerary that year, and you can never, can never quite tell looking back at, like, the Deads, like, the, the, the calendar of dates they played, what was going on. But uh, the 18th and the 19th, uh, of 1973 December were a Tuesday and a Wednesday night. So right. these are midweek shows, you know, right for the holidays, but not necessarily, uh, you know, your weekend party crowd. And they hadn't played a show for, I, th- I believe, six days before the 18th, which was in Atlanta. And one article I read said they all went back to San Francisco between those two shows. So they didn't even like hang out in the Southeast. They like flew back home and then flew back to Tampa. So while they were touring for, you know, several months up before that point, uh, these are two shows coming off just like this weird, like end of tour, like layoff. And then they don't play any other shows. So the rest of 73, there's no new year's show. There's no like holiday shows. It's just, we're going to play two random shows in the middle of the week in Tampa. And then, uh, we're going to call it a year. Yeah. We're going to end the year by playing about as far away from San Francisco as we can get and still being in the continental Mm -hmm. United States, like the opposite end of the country in Florida. So, uh, let's kind of run down like what was happening in the culture this week in December of 73, the number one song in America, the most beautiful girl in the world by Charlie Rich. Do you know that song? You know, I had to listen to it, uh, today (laughs) you wanted to see the most beautiful girl in the world yeah see like a soft rock classic when i saw that the name i thought of the prince song which is not a cover (laughs) right it's a totally different song no no totally different song but but there were two most beautiful girls you would think that uh you know, if if these songs were accurate there would only be one song the most beautiful girl in the world but apparently there were multiple beautiful girls in the world uh according to charlie rich and prince actually I well think the they were, prince song they were a couple a decades apart so you know is the prince song uh, a cover i think it might be huh but but at any rate the charlie rich song the most beautiful girl in the world you but, know charlie you know, rich is a 
I was just going to ask, do you know Charlie Rich's nickname? No, what is it? The Silver Fox. Oh, nice. He was yeah, the exactly. first to bear that name, huh? I know. I, I feel like uh, one of us should try to take that mantle and carry it <laughs> forward. Because Charlie, Charlie's been gone since 1995, passed right. away in 95. So uh, he gave it up. It, it Charlie Rich, he, big country star of the 70s. He got he got his start in the fifties. He recorded for Sun Records. He had kind of an inconsistent recording career, but then he really became a big pop star, kind of a country pop star mm-hmm. uh, in the seventies. And then the most beautiful girl in the world, the number one song in America uh, this week, well, the number the, one you know, album the, in the country. The, one thing about Charlie oh, Rich, the interesting thing I thought about that it being sort of like a country western pop crossover song. Is that it makes like Bob's like endless supply of cowboy songs in this era seem a little less like weird. Like it does seem like, right. like early that era of the seventies seems like a time when a lot of country people were crossing over. Maybe, you know, for like well, maybe not for the first time, but like it, it does seem like there is like a there was a moment happening. That's a lot of like country po- country politan and like I think of the movie Nashville and stuff like that, like that kind of country music happening. So, well, especially like, like again, like a guy like Charlie Rich too, who's like, you know, like I think he was like a middle aged man at that point, and he's singing this sort of like horny song about like you know picking up on this girl, you know, which was like another thing about seventies pop country is that you had like a lot of these like horny middle aged men like Charlie Rich and like Conway Twitty and. I guess to some degree, George Jones, you know, could be grouped into there as well. And, well, we know Bob Weir. He wasn't a horny middle-aged man at this time. He was a horny young man, but, you know, he's, 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 he's a horn dog. You know, I actually Googled Bob Weir and Charlie Rich hoping that Bob had covered a Charlie Rich song at some point, but he didn't. But I did find, and this is the power of Google, because another big music-related story from this week in December of 1973 was that Bobby Darren, the great 50s singer, died the day after this show on December 20th, 1973. And Bob Weir covered a Bobby Darren song, Artificial Flowers, on his 2018 tour. What does that mean? I have no idea. I think it's, it's just Bobby's solidarity, really. <laughs> so the number one album in the country this week, uh, in uh, December of 1973... Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, which I believe was number one in the country for like several weeks uh, at that point. That's mm-hmm. a great record, by the way. Are you yeah. a fan of that record? Yeah, yeah, of course. Great album. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading Elton John's biography. Oh, yeah. And I learned that Elton and the Grateful Dead were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the same year. Hmm. And uh, Elton John writes in his biography about how Jerry Garcia didn't show up to the induction ceremony that they had a cardboard cutout of Jerry, like when right, he did yeah. the speech. And uh, Elton writes about how he uh, was sort of jealous of Jerry Garcia because he wished he had done the same thing. Because he's like, he didn't because really, he, he didn't really want to go to the induction ceremony because he thought it was stupid. And then he saw that Jerry Garcia didn't go and he's like, oh, he had the right idea. He, he just stayed home. Right. That's what I should have done. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a good thing. Um, we should also mention that Wake of the Flood, the Grateful Dead record, came out 
like a month, well, actually, actually two months before this show, but it, mm-hmm. it peaked on the charts like the week before this show. Right. At number 18. W- so nowhere near uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, but not bad. Not bad for the yeah, dead. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. And it was like the, it was their first studio record in three years. I think it was like the, their first studio record since American Beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they put out like the Skull and Roses record. Right. Three there. live records in between there. <laughs> three live records. Which so Europe 72, um, as you said, is sort of a, a hybrid, I guess you could say, because it is a lot of new material. And also, we should probably a lot, a lot of it made in the studio. Right, right. And we'll get into Wake of the Flood because they play a lot of Wake of the Flood material yeah. at this show. And it all sounds better here than it does on the record. Uh, <laughs> but there's some incredible songs on Wake of the Flood. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my personal favorites are on that record. Um, we should mention too that, like, you know, in this like same span of time, like in the like the fall of '73, you have. You know, The Who puts out Quadrophenia. The Stones put out Goat's Head Soup. Ullman Brothers put out Brothers and Sisters. Stevie Wonder puts out Inner Visions. Not a bad season for music. Yeah, and uh, it's like... In, in the um, fall of 73. It, it kind of made me think, like... You know, we think of The Dead as being so far out of the mainstream, I think, a lot. In terms of rock history, but, like... It seemed like almost like there, there's a lot of heavy hitters there in that list you just had. They're all making like super big, ambitious records at this time. I feel like like this is sort of we're getting into like the swollen era of like classic rock, where everybody's making double albums, everybody's making you know rock operas or suites and things like that. Like Goodbye Yellow Brick Road opens up with an 11 minute song, right? Funeral for a friend is right. It's up there. Uh, so like. You, you look at that next to Wake of the Flood, and there's really not that big of a difference, especially as we'll get into well, with Wake of the Flood, like, is a pretty produced album as well. Well, and, like, uh, another record that came out, I think, like, two weeks before the show was Tales of Topographic Oceans by Yes, mm, okay, which is, yeah. like, sort of the, which is, like, the height of, like, excess in music in 73 like where every song is like 20 minutes long yeah one on song record. per side baby yeah and yep. you know i have what do you think jerry liked progressive rock what do you think I jerry think, thought about progressive rock well like definitely blues for allah is like the most proggy dead so we're like not quite there yet but like wake of the flood in a lot of ways feels like sort of an on-ramp to the blues for allah era and right. it's like, as you said, it's like a, it's got a little more like of a jazzy feel than like a proggy feel at this point. Um, but there is a suite on it. And, you know, there's like some ambitious stuff going on as far as like guest musicians. And it, you know, there you could you see sort of foreshadowing of Blues for Allah and Terrapin Station and like a lot of the more sort of ornate dead of the mid to late 70s. I just love the. I, I like to imagine that like Jerry, like, got home like from a tour and like put on like, you know, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. You know, like was was he rocking like the sort of whimsical British folk, uh, like proggy rock of the seventies? Part of me thinks he would like it, and the other part of me just feels like it'd be totally anathema to like what he would be into. Yeah, I mean, I could see like you know he was such like an old folky like at heart in terms of like just the old blues folk songbook uh 
a great example of which we'll get to in this show. Um, but I don't know. I think so. I feel like you'd be more of like a British Prague fan. I feel like you'd be like a Fairport Convention type of fan. So oh, Genesis yeah, is yeah, I bet. Genesis kind of like he the fucked. you know like sort of peripheral to that sort of like more right. inching more towards the poppy arty side of that but i could right. see a lot of that like early 70s like canterbury prog scene being jerry's kind of thing if it got to, got in his right. hands yeah i would say jerry would definitely fuck with fairport convention probably would not fuck with yes probably would not fuck with genesis the question is would he fuck with jethro tull because mm. jethro tull is kind of in the middle there that would be the question mark yeah um, maybe there's some like journal that will be unearthed where Jerry gives his opinion on Aqualung and uh, <laughs> this mystery will be solved. Here's one thing I know I'm, I'm pretty sure Jerry would have fucked with The Exorcist, which came out the week after this show. I bet I Jerry know. loved The Exorcist. I love it. I, I bet, love that I, The Exorcist I, was a Christmas release. <laughs> it was. Like, that blows my mind. I bet Jerry was like, I'm not playing any New Year's shows because. I'm going to see The Exorcist like five times yeah. like the week it comes out. So there's yeah. no, sh- so we're going to play these shows in Florida and then I'm done because it's Exorcist time because I've been waiting for this movie for like months. So I think that explains why there was no New Year's show in 73 because of The Exorcist. Jerry was like, because Jerry's a horror movie guy. I'm sure he would have been excited to see The Exorcist. Yeah. That's my theory. I think that's Absolutely. why. He's like, fuck, the, fuck, forget New Year's Eve watching The Exorcist. I'm going to like get some great weed, maybe draw some acid, go see The Exorcist. It'll well, there's amazing. a jam in this show that, you know, kind of sounds like Linda Blair throwing up pea soup. <laughs> so, yeah, it, doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all. So, yeah, so The Exorcist came out like right after the show. Now... I can't vouch for the accuracy of this. I found it on a, on a website called uh, Playback FM where you enter in like a date and it'll give you like the number one movie in America that week. But according to that site, it said Papillon was the number one movie the week that this show was played. Uh, have you seen that movie with Dustin Hoffman and Steve McQueen? It's a great movie. It's, a, it's been years. This is one of those movies that I remember my parents had taped off of HBO in the 80s when that was a thing. So I'm I'm pretty sure that's probably the last time I saw it too. It, so, but it's sort of uh, like uh, it's an Alcatraz escape movie, right? Yeah. Well, I don't, it's not Alcatraz. Yeah. It's like there because it, it, it's like some sort of like French prison or something. Um, oh, okay. But it, it, it's amazing. I mean, that's the thing about this is like okay, so the Dead's playing. You know, they're playing a Tuesday and Wednesday night show in Tampa, eight thousand seat venue. So it's you know considerable size, especially for them at this time. There's a lot of other things to do in 73. Amazing movie year. You know, like The Sting was out. That was a huge movie this week. Uh, Great albums coming out. You know, there was a lot of competition for people's dollars at this time. And yet people were like, I still got to go see The Dead at this venue. So I think that's a testament to how good they were at this time. Because it's like, man, if you could go see like uh, Papillon in a theater and that was a new movie, like that'd be a pretty hard thing to turn down. But if the dead's in town, you're obviously going to go see the dead. But I'm just saying, culture was like pretty fucking awesome, I think, at this time. All in the Family was the number one show. That's an amazing, that's like a, that's a great show to watch in reruns. I don't know if you ever watch All in the Family. 
I just assume All in the Family is going to be the number one TV show, like <laughs> for every seventies dead show, right? Well, either that or Mash. I feel like it's yeah, that or Mash. We're, yeah. we're gonna have uh, All in the Family and Mash. The number one book was uh was Burr by Gore Vidal or Burr Burr, <laughs> which is about Aaron Burr, the former president. Uh, I guess this was like the Hamilton of 1973. Uh, also feel like oh, sure. should mention Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut was the number one book in America for like two months that summer of 73. Yeah. So again, kind of speaking to what your earlier point about like the dead being outside of culture. It's like, well, you know, Kurt Vonnegut was like one of the most popular authors in, in America in 1973. So, mm-hmm. you know, kind of makes you feel like the dead were maybe more mainstream than we might think in retrospect. So here we are getting to the show here. <laughs> it's like we've been we've been jamming here for about fifty minutes already before getting to the show. I hope I hope the Osiris people um don't have a curfew for this show. <laughs> hope hope, hope I, I hope they're letting us jam on here. Don't want to shut our power because we're just getting cooking here. Um but I think we've set the scene here for the for this show. Great time in America, awesome culture. And the dead is right in the middle of it. So let's get, in, I guess, into disc one um, of this show. And it's interesting because disc one really does not resemble like set one at all of of the actual show. Yeah, it's, it's totally scrambled. And I think like a, a little bit of it was just trying to fit what they could on like the you know the format of a cd um well but and, yeah and we should say we should say by the way that you can go on like the relisten app or you can go on live archive and you can hear a soundboard version of the complete show of this like if you want to compare the show to the dicks picks release i should also mention too that december 18th the show before this there's also a soundboard of that and i would really recommend checking that out because that's a pretty awesome show too but um Basically, like the first nine songs are chopped. Yeah. So you have Pro- you have Promised Land, you have Sugary, Mexicali Blues, um, Direwolf, Blackthorn Wind, Candyman, Jack Straw, all gone, and they're all pretty good versions. Like it sounds really great. Like it's a fun show to listen to. But I kind of understand, like if you had to be judicious on what you were going to put on like why you would cut those out yeah and i think you know from what i've read dick latvala was very much in favor of releasing complete shows instead of this sort of like a bridge version that they had for the first you know few volumes but he was also very much like 
felt like he didn't need to put out stuff that people already had good versions of. So like people asked him like right from the start, like when are you going to put out Cornell 77? When are you going to put out Veneta? And he was like, everybody already has a great tape of those shows. I don't need to put that out. So I feel like part of his decisions for what went into this release, as far as picking particular songs has to do with the fact that like, there's already pretty good versions of these songs out there. Uh, particularly like a lot of these are sort of Europe 72 era songs. Um, so I, I think maybe right. he thought like, you know, there's a, there's a ton of good candy mans out in circulation already, or if there's not, we're going to get to it in one of these other shows. So I'm going to really like dial in on stuff that they were doing really well in 1973. Uh, and we'll just leave that stuff on the cutting room floor to, for somebody else to pick up later. Well, the first song on the Dix Picks release is Here Comes Sunshine, and which is, I think, like the 12th song in the set. Like, there's actually, like, Big Railroad Blues and Big River are before it in the actual show, but they get slotted after it on the record. Right. It seems like a pretty strategic move, though, to put this song first because, I mean, it's an incredible version of this song. And mm-hmm. when I when I was saying before about how there's like two or three songs on here that are like the definitive versions in my mind. Like this is the definitive Here Comes Sunshine for me. Like, and I remember hearing this for the first time and this is going to sound like a cliche, but it's true. I bought this album like on a spring day and like I literally like rolled my window down in the car while this was playing. And, you know, there's like no introduction to this song. You know, there's no crowd noise. You just hear the guitar at the beginning and it's that very sort of airy kind of almost twinkly sounding guitar it sounds like a little faint like i remember having to turn up my stereo fairly loud so it would come through um but it seems like that was strategically done because they wanted to spotlight that song and they knew that this song would sort of set the tone for the record steve was it was it a cloudy day and a rainbow came shooting out and reflected <laughs> off your car windows what? and some dancing bears what? crossed the street in front of you and a, a skeleton tipped his Uncle Sam hat at you. and Exactly. And then like I went to a, uh, I, I went to a, like a peace protest and I put a flower <laughs> in the gun of a soldier and uh, it, it was, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was, yeah. it was a poetic, it was a poetic day. No, I mean, it was like, one of those great moments where you hear a song that's kind of like, oh, this is like what you want to hear when it's when the sun is shining outside and you can roll down the window and you can hear right. this song. You can hear this like 14 minute song that's going to unfold uh, for you. And yeah. uh, so it was just beautiful. It's a beautiful version. And it's interesting because it's like, again, um, there's something about the way that we're playing here, and I I feel like it's probably related to some degree to it being the end of the tour. There is like a sense of exhaustion that you hear in the playing, but not a bad exhaustion. It's sort of like a like body. It's it's like they're really chilled out, and right. they're really kind of laid back, and they're not pushing it at all. And there's mm. something about their ability to kind of lay back the way they do. On this song, and I guess you know throughout the record as it unfolds, 
that shows like a real confidence to me that they could like uh because it's not like lethargic it's not like they're unfocused they're deep in the pocket they know what they're doing but they also don't feel the need to like be overly aggressive you know like because they 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 don't have to be aggressive you know there's there's Mm -hmm. something kind of beautiful about what they're doing here um and and you definitely hear it on this song and you hear it on some other tracks as well that we'll that we'll talk about in a bit um but i just feel like this version um, for me, is the one I always think about. Like, if I want to hear this song, like this is the version I go to. Yeah, and you know, we're not always going to have this degree of specificity as far as why certain shows were picked. Um, but I did find an actual interview with Dick Ladvala from Dupree's Diamond Blues, which was sort of like the Grateful Dead like fanzine that went out for a lot of years, where they interviewed him, and he said, like you, like you said, that the 18th was a show like that was just as good as the 19th um, and also had a, had a good tape, but he said he put out the 19th basically because of the here comes sunshine. Like he thought that was just like the best possible version of that song. And he wanted all the deadheads to hear it. And so the 19th it was, and that makes sense why he would just, you know, go ahead and put it right at the start of the disc. Like no, no intro at all. Let's get right to it. Here's here comes sunshine. And I agree. It's a, it's an amazing song. It's like, I think because they retired it for so long, like they started playing it again in the 90s. Um, but it really only had a run of a few years, I think, after Wake of the Flood came out. And it's one of those songs that just shows so well what the dead did best without it like tipping over into cliche, I feel like. And maybe like some of the like great dead songs are cliche to me just because I've heard them so many times and I still love them a lot. But like, you know, like China Cat, I Know You Writer, also is like another song that I think really shows the dead at their best. But it's also like, for a deadhead, like one of the first songs you go to when you want to talk about great dead songs. Here Comes Sunshine is one that like it's, it had such a short run that it feels like a little more special when you find a great version. And it kind of has that same sort of China Writer, especially this version, like vibe to it in terms of the jamming. And it's just like, it's a real pleasure to hear and not something I ever really get burnt out to because like you just don't hear it that often. Uh, But yeah, I totally agree. It's a great version. It has like so many like sort of mini jams within the song. Like there's kind of like three different jams that happen and they just feel very organic. Like there's even one sort of at the end that just seems completely like tacked on because they just enjoyed playing this song at that time and they just wanted to keep playing it um and yeah it's it's it uh, one it, it does what all great grateful dead jams do which is that you can listen to it over and over again and just focus on different members and hear something totally new because everybody is full-on like improvising but in a way that can sound totally cohesive if you just have it on in the background but if you just dial in on like bob or keith for the runtime of the song it changes like the the feel of it entirely it's really it's great and they just hit like a a zone on that song where like and you can't say this about many 14 minute songs you know even you know obviously we're talking about the dead so like we're into the meandering type uh you know songs and everything but like I, this song like never seems to drag for me 
like 14 it's like this probably could have gone like 28 minutes and i probably wouldn't have been bored by it just something about the groove of this song it's very hypnotic it's very soothing to me um it, it just sounds perfect um and there's other great versions of this song that they performed in 73 there's actually like a pretty good version in that pacific northwest uh record that they put out uh last year yeah yeah that's but like going. again i always feel like this is the version that i measure all other versions against and like i don't like that one quite as much as this one um it, it's interesting that we go from this song that like wasn't performed a whole lot in terms of the dead's overall history to big river in the second slot which was like one of the go-to songs for for bob you know the uh the cowboy songs you know this song in el paso mama tried you know it's like Am I missing one in terms of like the oft performed like country songs that Bob would do? I mean, I feel like those are like the big three. Bobby McGee is kind of in there too, or me and my uncle. Like those are the original ones, I guess, but they're very much same vibe. Because like the next two songs are two longer songs from Wake of the Flood, Mississippi Half Step, Mm -hmm. Uptune Toodaloo, and Weather Report Suite. And it's interesting because they actually play Weather Report Suite the night before too, which is like kind of like a long song. Because like most of the most of the sets like uh, from those two nights, like they managed to play like pretty unique sets. Like they didn't really repeat a whole lot of songs over those two nights, but they did play that song twice. Um, I actually kind of prefer the one from the night before, maybe because like Phil talks over the introduction on the eighteenth. Where he talks about how this, I didn't hear it. What does he say? Something like, "Oh, this is like the slow part, or this is like the quiet part." (laughs) And um, I like that. I I mean, I like Weather Report Suite. Um, It's it's funny to me because you know this is like a fifteen minute song, you know, multi part Mm. track, and I think on Wake of the Flood, the song before it is Eyes of the World, which on the record is only about five minutes long. And like to me, like Eyes of the World is like maybe my favorite Grateful Dead song, or it'd be like in the top three or four. Certainly, like of a song that I mm-hmm. want to see stretched out, like that would be up there. Whereas, like Weather Report Suite, where it's like a more composed type song, and there's some jamming, but there's not a whole lot. It's more about like these different parts. This is again like the dead and like prog rock mode certainly on this on this track like it's not as interesting to me like to hear live like i'd rather like they they played eyes of the world the night before and it's like a 14 minute version and it's uh, and it's awesome um like i'd rather hear that than weather report suite but i think it's a pretty good version uh on this record yeah i'm not not a weather report suite I, fan and i think they played it both nights because it was bob's <laughs> like only new song right uh, it's his only song on Wake of the Flood, which is kind of weird. I like the but, beginning. I like the uh, beginning. I'm not as into it like when it speeds up, like that second part. Oh, like, really? I, I kind of like the the, the beginning oh, okay. kind of languid part. That's kind of pretty, and yeah. then like it kind of speeds up, and I, I lose interest a little bit at that point. Yeah, I think it sounds like yeah. I I like Let It Grow, like and Let It Grow has some pretty big jams like later on in its lifetime. But the first two parts sound like library music to me. It's like, you know, the generic <laughs> background music that studio musicians make 
for like you know low cost soundtracking usage. I mean, it's like it's Bob really. I think kind of stretching himself a little bit to try and make like a big epic, which was really not his lane. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he it, tried I, it. I he, find he, he went to this well though, like several times, like in the seventies. Like, yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, I feel like he. Uh, I guess I'm thinking of like you know like saying a circumstance and like lost sale or like yeah. that thing and. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was in, he definitely wanted to write like big songs. Um, that yeah, never really quite connected. He like he, like he didn't like have a Terrapin station, you know, that like, right. like a home run proggy song, you know, like his prog mm-hmm. songs. I mean, I, I actually like saying a circumstance lost sailor, like that whole, like, you know, thing. I mean, I, I, I actually like those songs, but, um, you know, he never really fully connected, I think working in that mode yeah it's just Uh, like it's and especially live it's just a really the full weather report suite is just an incredible like it's very sleepy right (laughs) i mean and it's kind of a momentum killer and not like in a nice like uh you know ballady sort of way it's just sort of like it doesn't really do much for six to eight minutes before it finally sort of picks up in the let it grow section See, I kind of like the slow part just because it's kind of vibey. I like the sound of the guitar. I, you know, there's something about again the '73 where I just respond to like the slow vibey parts, and maybe that's why I like the beginning of of this song. But yeah, it's just a little too composed. I I, I like it when like if the Dead's gonna play a song for 15 minutes, I want the song to be like three minutes and like the jam to be like 12 minutes. And I don't want yeah. You know, the whole song to be actually, you know, 15 minutes. Um, and speaking of which, I guess playing in the band, which is like the last track on disc one, would be an example of that where, yeah, you know, another Bob song and a beautiful song that in this era was definitely going off into some like pretty noodly sounding like jammy parts, which I feel like the, I feel like the jam on this song is sort of like the cliche jam that like people who hate this kind of music would imagine that Grateful Dead sound like. And I say that as someone who I, I like this version a lot, but it's like extremely noodly. Oh, absolutely. So I, you know, all right. I'm I'm glad we're disagreeing a little bit. Finally, like an hour into the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't. I don't say that's a bad thing. I, I love this. Ver- you don't like I, this version? Are you saying you don't? I think like it's it? okay. And like honestly, I have sort of like a block with a lot of these sort of long early '70s plans, where it's something about how they approach the jam just doesn't appeal to me as much as like a lot of things that are very similar to it but just seem to have a different flavor and i think i mean these play-in jams are like as like are very free and i respect that like it's like very impressive that the dead were willing to go this far and it's funny to think about like this one is what 21 minutes that one they put out on the pacific northwest box which i think is a 74 version uh but it came out last year it's 46 minutes long, so more yeah. than twice as long as this. Yeah, which is like, that's, yeah, that's like yeah, way yeah. too much. Like, that's way too much. Like, like I think 21, I can, I can handle the noodling for mm-hmm, 21 mm-hmm. minutes. I can get into it, but yeah, 46. Yeah, this one, like, my attention uh, kind of just, it drifts a lot in the middle. And I think, like, it's, you know, playing and Dark Star were kind of like, at this point especially, sort of alternating as the big jam of the night. 
And I just feel like Dark Star will typically have more of like a narrative to it. Like improvisationally speaking, whereas right. playing is just like this big, like dense slab <laughs> that they're they're kind of all doing their own thing, and it doesn't really connect collectively as much as I want from the dead, and it, it just like loses me sometimes. And I think it lo- like that that that's part of what they're going for almost. And I feel like particularly if I was in Tampa in 1973 and like high on something, like it would be a, like like indescribably amazing uh but like sitting at home dead sober <laughs> it doesn't really do it for me but it, it and it, it it definitely like they they like lose it and they come back and they congeal and when they congeal it sounds amazing and like on this version it really happens like after the lyrics come back like 18 minutes into it sort of the lyric reprise the last three minutes are so good <laughs> after that but it's just like it kind of like I, well, I fade in and out like through the the jam proper i guess well i think i found the core of our disagreement on this song because i can say the last time i listened to this version like i was not sober so maybe that's the difference is that i was in a proper headspace to enjoy the like for like you know 15 minutes in the middle uh cuz I, I i was vibing out on it i don't need 46 minutes of that yeah. but like 20 minutes i can i can get into and i can get into a, a meditative you can state add uh, it's just a, it's just a snack really 21 minutes yeah exactly in the band. it's like a, <laughs> exactly you it's know an appetizer exactly exactly uh one thing i want to say like the and this is relevant to play in and also like earlier on this disc the half step which in keeping with the like sort of out of order shenanigans of this set the half step was actually the second set opener which i don't but they like plop it in the in the middle of the first disc (laughs) which is like strange i'm not sure exactly what the reasoning was here um but one thing we haven't mentioned is that donna not at this show it's like this weird sort of like anomalous five-piece lineup in 1973 uh because donna was had a very good excuse for missing work she was actually giving birth to her and keith's child uh, it's funny that the dead just like kept on playing and that Keith was not present for giving birth to his first child, but there you go. Rock and roll in the seventies. Well, yeah, you know, Keith. Uh, not, not, not the wokest of, uh, work environments. Yeah. I was going to say like, you know, Grateful Dead in the seventies, I feel like those guys like were maybe not like the let's hang out in the delivery room type guys, you know, it's just my feeling. Sure. You know the culture of rock and and the culture in the band. They, they, they there was a little bit of Mad Men era left over, even in the hippie culture. I think of the of the seventies. Um, yeah. yeah, I think especially in the hippie culture, probably. Uh, I mean, it's like so. This is a it's a big like bugaboo I have with the Grateful Dead, like the discussion around the Grateful Dead. And I feel like it's gotten better recently, but like I really think the like knee jerk anti Donna stuff is silly. And silly at best and misogynist at worst. And like, you know, Donna, she can be, she can be harsh. Like there's a lot of those play and screams that make me wince as well. But like, it's not like the dudes and the dead were like note perfect singers themselves. Right. And so I feel like it's a little bit unfair to hold Donna to that standard when they were dealing with, you know, crazy 70s sound systems where they couldn't hear themselves half the time. Right. And like, I actually kind of miss her, like, at parts of this show. Like, I, like, Half Step is a song that I really like Donna's part on. Uh, and it sounds very strange, sort of the, the Rio Grandio part at the end of Half Step. 
it sounds really weird to me without Donna singing over everybody else. Well, so I, I don't know. It's like I, I I don't think it was any factor in releasing this show at first. Like I don't think this is like oh we got to get a show out that doesn't have Donna on it to appease the Deadheads. But I do think it's a little weird and non-representative that they picked like you know a rare Donna-free maternity leave. 73 concert yeah i feel like <laughs> for this release i feel like it was not a coincidence that they did that and i have to say you know i hear everything you're saying there are times where i really appreciate what donna brings to the band i love the idea of her being in the band i love the band photos like where she is in the band like i like how they look with her however in yeah. this show I, there was no point where i missed her or Mickey. Obviously, Mickey was not playing at all with the Dead at this time. <laughs> but like a one drummer, yeah. Grateful Dead lineup without Donna. All due respect mm. to Donna. But I feel like this is the Dead as there is no extraneous elements in this lineup. And you can, I, it does not hurt the show. I'll just say that, you know, you know, and I I appreciate you that you missed Donna, uh, Mississippi Half Step. And I have to say, too, that, you know, Rob and I, we made a rule for listening to these shows that we were allowed one bathroom break. And the bathroom break is where you can skip a song uh, that you don't want to hear, because especially as we get later into these series, like some of these albums are pretty long. And we're going to be hitting some of these 80s shows, like where the third song is always Bob Weir doing uh, Little Red Rooster or CC Rider for nine minutes. And, uh, or, you know, maybe uh, Pigpen doing Good Morning Little Schoolgirl for 15 minutes. And, you know, we're, we want to pace ourselves here. We we're not going to be able to sit through all those. So we, we gave ourselves an out. We get, we get one bathroom break per show. And I did take a bathroom break metaphorically speaking for Mississippi half step, which is a song I've always thought was really, wow. really boring. And I don't really get into that. Wow. Song. All right. I'm not a big oh. fan of that song. It's all right. It's like, I don't, do I need to, it's like, and I knew because I was already familiar with this record. Obviously I've heard this record many times, but I still wanted to do a listen specific for this podcast. But I was like, I don't need to hear the 12 1973 Mississippi half step again. So I did take a bathroom break during that song. Did you take a bathroom break at all, all right. during either, during either day? Uh, so I didn't literally, um, or figuratively, but, you didn't uh, no, in no, the, no metaphor in the, in the spirit of the, in the spirit of the bit, I had marked, uh, big railroad blues was my bathroom break. Oh, uh, okay. I don't dislike big railroad blues, but I did feel like it was a little redundant after big river. Not just because they're both big something, uh, but because they're also sort of that like speedy, like bluegrassy type of song where they're both like really good versions with like pretty like intense Jerry soloing. But like two of those within a few songs is like more than I needed. If I had to take a break anywhere, that would be it. Though, in retrospect, I should have gone in the first half of Weather Report Suite. I was just like, I don't even remember what the first half of Weather Report Suite sounds like, so I want to stick around and hear what this is. Uh, but oh. if it ever comes up again, like, absolutely top of the list, bathroom break. My uh, my bladder was empty for Weather Report Suite. I gladly sat through that. I, I had no problem sitting through that. I will say... I you gladly sat. Sat is the key word there. I, you were like, you sat and pondered well, it. Well, yeah, you don't... Well, there's no dancing during Weather Report Suite. You can, you, you, you can <laughs> chill out and contemplate. I will say, too, like, Big, Big Railroad Blues, 
you could have plugged in Candyman or Dire Wolf in that spot. I would have been pretty happy with with either one of those songs from the actual mm-hmm. first set of the show. I actually like the w- version of Dire Wolf from this show. It's a it's a little bit slower, as a really cool, you know, some really cool soloing from Jerry. I I mean, I also love Sugary. I you could put Sugary on every Dick's Picks, and I would listen to it, especially from the seventies. Because there's usually like at least two great Jerry Garcia guitar solos in that. And like when they got to 77, they would do like 15 minute versions of that where Jerry would just solo forever. And it was great. I guess I don't, uh, the, the, the uh, soundboard that I heard actually cut off the end of Sugary. I don't know if there's like any complete versions of that song. But yeah, like on Relu- Well, that is something like we always have to consider with these things is like, they actually had to do like tape flips and stuff like that. Like, you know, they, they, they couldn't record these shows totally continuously. So there are like good technical reasons why they couldn't include certain things. Um, and I also wonder if like big railroad blues is just like the song that fit, like they have a maximum amount of music they can put on a compact disc and big railroad blues is a nice little tidy, like four or five minute song versus, you know, however long sugary is on this night. So, you know, there's, there's other reasons for why they had to make these decisions, but it's fine. I like that. They sound very, you, you, you've been talking about how kind of like slow and exhausted and languid the pace of these shows is. And it's nice to have a few songs in there that show that they, they, they had like pep when they yeah, needed it. Absolutely. Let's go to disc two, which I think is like clearly the star of this set. I love disc two. This is like some of my favorite Grateful Dead music on this disc. Um, how do you feel about disc two? Yeah, I mean, you hate it. Are you, you going to say you hate no, it? No, 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 no. I love disc two. And it's <laughs> like, it's nice. And this is, I think, is also a reason why they moved some stuff around is, um, you know, pretty much every dead show of the seventies had one of these like suites of music that it was usually like 45 minutes to an hour and strung, you know, four or five, six songs together. Uh, so it's very appropriate that they reserved one disc for like this show's suite. And I think this is very much like a dick decision. Like we can't just pull out, like Stella Blue from this and not have everything that came before that because like it's a fine Stella Blue but it sounds amazing after like the craziness that happens in the few minutes before that uh so there had never other than I think Live Dead really there had never been a dead live release that sort of tried to recreate at least mimic if not you know reproduce this sort of like long form flow of a Grateful Dead set so it's like, if for nothing else, like Dick's Picks Volume 1 
well, like the top reason is probably just to get that here comes sunshine out. But number two is to get, you know, finally, here's like what a, like a big unbroken stretch of a Grateful Dead concert sounded like in its like real authentic form. And really like this disc is, I think, really the meat of the show like and in addition to the here comes sunshine from the first disc this progression um you know it, it's worth the price of admission it is interesting looking at the actual set too as you mentioned like they start with like mississippi half step they go into me and bobby mcgee and then they do like the weather report section and then they hit he's gone but like man that first half of the second set is like as like draggy as like this second half is transcendent like they really like <laughs> yeah yeah they they got the transcendent part of the show on the uh, on the second disc so like in a way you know as fun as it is to go back to the actual shows and and you know kind of recreate like what it was like to be in the audience to see these things unfold um as an actual listening experience i mean i think this disc two is like a much better listen than listening to like the actual show, mm-hmm. at least the second set. Yeah, I can buy that. I mean, I think, yeah, I've made my feelings known about weather report suite. So <laughs> like having that right in front of this, this block could have, could have taken it down a little bit. Well, like but, Mississippi half step. Yeah, I mean, it's it, like, it, it's it, like in like Bob doing like me and Bobby McGee. It's like, uh, you know, that, I mean, that's a bathroom break right there. You don't really need to hear that. And then going into Weather Report Suite, you know, like that's like a solid, uh, you know, like half hour of like kind of like, okay, you know, like not what you would want from a second set. Like you kind of want, you know, you feel like the second set is like when the, is when you're going to see God, you know, and you see God finally, but you have to go through like a half hour of like kind of, uh, you know, very composed and like not terribly exciting Grateful Dead music. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Grateful Dead, like they were not ever very good at putting like an entire complete flowing set together. I think in part because of the way their official releases were edited down for so long. I don't think that like actual Dead shows ever were really like like here's a totally great top to bottom set. <laughs> like I think there's always weird rough patches that people either just don't forget or or people don't remember or they like sort of remember only because like the the slow parts made the good parts that much better. Uh so I think if you did put it out like the complete show this this segment still would be really good, but I mean you you obviously wouldn't get to it quite as quickly as you do in the way that they put it out. So the second desk, it starts with he's gone. And this is another version that is like one of my favorite versions of like this particular song. Um, And like here comes sunshine. It has that same sort of, again, like that exhausted, chilled out kind of bliss to it, you know, where, you could tell that they've been touring for a long time. They've been on the road all year, but they've reached the end of the road and like, they're kind of giving it one last push. Um, and just like how this song sort of like breaks down a little bit as it goes into trucking, which is the second track on this disc. Um, I just really like it. I mean, the, I mean, Kreutzmann's drumming is like so slow 
at the end of this song and like the just the tempo it's like kind of barely hanging on and staying a song like it, it sounds like it's about to fall apart at any moment and yet in that very sort of grateful dead kind of way they're able to hold it together just enough where uh it's able to stay in one piece and kind of glide gently but also raggedly into trucking and there's and it's totally unique to this band where you know there's no way that like a more polished band could pull that off you know but they also were so skilled at this time that there's a kind of grace to it at the same time it's like a ramshackle grace and i feel like this song it, you know this performance to me is just like maybe the best example of that uh, because it's slow, it's kind of teetering a little bit, um, but it still has a groove. And uh, there's just great touches all over the place. One of my favorite parts of the song, I think it comes at about the 350 mark. There's this great Keith Godshow piano lick that just kind of comes out of the ether. And he's like playing this sort of circular piano part. And it's actually like one of my favorite things that he's ever played. Because I always, I always feel yeah. like Keith. I know exactly the part. I I noted it down too. It's like just just great little film yeah. out of nowhere. And I feel like from a guy who's not usually very flashy exactly. like that. Exactly, but it, it it's perfect right and there. And I don't know if like it was just his playing or maybe like where he was put in the mix. But I always feel like it's hard to hear Keith, and he's obviously a great player. Mm-hmm. But that part always stands out to me as like just a little thing that he did that stands out and kind of makes that part of the song like and i always look forward to hearing that whenever i hear this version well i'm glad you brought up keith because i like i'm honestly like shocked that i haven't just been raving about keith the entire like discussion (laughs) of this show so far i thought i was gonna have to like bite my tongue and not talk about how great keith is on every track because like if there's one thing that i think this volume of dicks picks does really well is it is just like a perfect example of how important keith was to like this like 73 74 jazzy dead sound um and i think part of what you're talking about the i like i love this like ramshackle grace phrase i think that's perfect but i feel like what i like keith is by far my favorite dead keyboardist and what i love about him is that he was extremely unflashy very much like a like just providing color guy rather than being like a lead featured soloist guy um, and he was perfect for the band at this time because everybody else is a flashy lead soloist guy <laughs> and they're all doing flashy lead solos that are very well like meshed together and they're so good at listening to each other and making it complement each other. But everybody else in the band is like doing their own thing. Like nobody is just like a traditional like timekeeper in the dead. But Keith like is just perfectly like humble and solid enough to kind of hold these things down in the background. So I think a lot of the times when you end up noticing him is things like there's a lot of parts in the play and jam, for instance, that it could just like spiral into like nonsense. Um, But Keith is like right there, like holding it down and, you know, not doing anything too weird. I love that he sticks to mostly piano in this era. I think it like adds just a really great sound to the dead. And it's just like everybody else is doing crazy stuff. Like, at least one guy is just, like, picking an instrument and sticking with it. <laughs> and so, and I I feel like, you know, the, this, like, very much, like, 
well, two things. I think like the dead swing harder in like 73, 74 than they ever did in any other era. And that's partly down to Keith. And I think it's just sort of his like background as a piano player. Um, but it's also, of course, the fact that it's like one, like prime, like one drummer dead time. And there is no like Mickey Bill, like sort of interplay that can like, it's just like the death of swing <laughs> in the dead. Uh, so the combination of Billy and Keith just kind of like keeping things like elastic, uh, but not quite like letting it get into complete chaos, uh, is what really like makes this era so special and yeah you did that that he's gone moment is great like he's great on trucking he's great throughout this whole disc he's great on the first disc i love keith that's all i'll, I'll, I'll cut it off well i think I, I i think keith was worried that like if he didn't play well that they would make him go be with donna and like i have to take care of his baby <laughs> so he's like I, I have to play well to stay in the band like i don't want to i don't want to be in the operating exactly room. yeah when my when, when my kid is born um i love keith too my thing with keith is always that I guess disagreeing with you a little bit. I always wish that he was a little more aggressive because I love piano and I love like, you know, I always, I talked about early nineties dead before I always loved like what Bruce Hornsby brought to the band because he was more of an assertive player and would actually like, you know, be a little bit more prominent and he would kind of push Jerry a little bit more. I feel like I totally get what you're saying about him kind of holding the band together. I feel like at some point, he became like a little too deferential to Jerry and he kind of just blends into the background more and more as the seventies unfold. And obviously he was dealing with his own personal issues that affected his playing. But I, I wish that he would maybe be a little more assertive. Cause like when I hear again, like in this song, his just little thing that he does at around like three fifty or so, like I just love that so much. And I wish there were more sort of flashes like Mm. that. In, in dead songs i think that would have added something because I, I definitely think he had the capability to play that he was obviously the most talented piano player that they had you know probably by far i guess other than hornsby um but uh obviously a great player and i love his playing on this song uh second track is trucking and it's interesting because like on the cd it's split into three different tracks Trucking, going into Nobody's Fault But Mine, the Blind Willie Johnson cover, and then going into the first jam on this side. In a way, this kind of feels like all the same song to me with like the sort of, because the Nobody's Fault But Mine, it feels sort of like an interpolation more than like a full-fledged song in the middle of trucking going into a jam. But I'm always curious like how these things get split up on track listings. Like, you know, because sometimes it's like, like, how do you know when a jam actually ends or, like, when something is a separate track? I guess here it's clearer because they do go into Nobody's Fault But Mine, which, by the way, I think most people listening to this podcast probably first heard that song on Led Zeppelin, Presence. Yeah, I was I was going to say, I don't know who this Blind Willie Johnson is. I thought it was a Page Plant original from yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, funny 1976's uh, Presence. It's kind of funny how Page and Plant uh, took credit for a song that an old blues guy wrote. It's right. kind of and, amazing and, they would do that, but they did do and that. And weird that they let the Grateful Dead uh, cover their song like three years before... <laughs> Led Zeppelin's version came out. I just yeah. like the the chronology doesn't make sense here. I don't I don't know what's going on. I will say that the first time I heard this record, 
that did blow me away because I was not familiar with the Blind Willie Johnson version of the song. And, you know, Jerry Garcia is clearly singing the chorus to Led Zeppelin's Nobody's Fault But Mine. And it was like, <laughs> oh. And it was like, you know, the usual suspect scene, like where you drop the coffee cup and it's like, whoa, <laughs> Led Zeppelin did it again. They stole another whoa, song. Whoa, these British people ripped off black people. Wow. <laughs> um, but anyway. You yeah, know, the, I mean, it's what a, the, the other cool thing about that. And, you know, the dead, they played it a handful of times. Um, and I haven't, I haven't heard the other versions, but what kind of jumped out to me about this one in particular is that it's, it's basically new, new speedway boogie, but with Jerry singing, nobody's fault, but mine over it. Like it has like almost exactly the same energy, if not some of the same chords, I'm not musically inclined enough to, to judge, but, uh, like just a, like, a, kind of a side cover, or sort of their own sort of interpretation, I guess, mixing but, it with things that they would normally do. So, so the trucking, it's a good version of trucking. It's like pretty upbeat. It's pretty rocking. I mean, it's not terribly different from other versions of trucking that they played during this era. Um, but it's good, and I and I really love the drifting into nobody's fault but mine. And then they and then they go into the jam and it's another kind of noodly jam. Like the, the, there's two tracks on the second disc that are uh, credited as just jam, and I think this is like the lesser of the two jams. I think the other one is like pretty awesome, and this one is like pretty mm-hmm. good. Um, yeah, but again, more on the. I mean, this side. is where like this is where I don't have a lot. Like this is where the 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 play in on the first disc looks like sort of less interesting to me is that I, I actually really like the first jam on this disc and I don't know why it's not just labeled as the other one. Cause Jerry even kind of plays the other one riff real quick at the end of nobody's fault, but mine before they get into this. Um, but I feel like it's doing kind of the same thing that the play in is, but in a much more effective manner. I don't know. It's, uh, just my opinion, but I, I feel like it has a little bit more like room to breathe, and it's got a little bit more of a, a, a direction to it. Probably because they know that they're heading into the other one, they just don't know when they're going to get there. I think for me, like and I, I like this jam. I like you know I, I'm pro noodly, obviously on this album, so like I like this noodly one too. I think be, I'm always I think I'm already looking ahead to the next jam that is on the other side of the other one, which I really really love, which seems like a precursor to like space basically, like before they did space. I think they started doing yeah, space in like the early '80s uh, officially, and also like, sea stones before that. It sounds very sea stony. Right. And it's just basically just like freeform noise drifting into the void, you know, soundtracking like any of the bad trips that were in the audience. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like, I love to read, I don't know if you like to do this. I love to read archive.org comments um, <laughs> because you get some of the like most like drug damaged brains ever to post on the internet in those comments and just some like truly bizarre memories of dead shows from you know, 50 years ago. Uh, this one had a great description of that jam, which I later turned out, uh, like, learned is like a Grateful Dead thing that I just never heard before. But they called it the Insect Fear Jam, <laughs> okay. which is a really accurate description of it. Um, but also, it turns out, like, is like a phrase that had kind of been floating around, like, the dead world 
like in these like pre-space uh experiments that they were doing like on it turns out like mickey hart's rolling thunder album which came out in 72 uh jerry's credited as playing insect fear on one of the tracks and it, <laughs> okay. like, they also used it to refer to some of like the the what's it called on uh the garcia solo album it's like the eep hour like these just weird avant-garde experiments but I just love that. Like, it's kind of like, you know, of all these weird sort of like names for specific Grateful Dead jams that came up again and again, like the beautiful jam or the mind left body jam or all the feeling groovy jam, all these things. I love like the insect fear jam. That just sounds really, <laughs> really palpable and accurate to me for what oh, yeah. they do. Ap- aptly named, aptly named. And what that jam reminded me of too is that scene in Long Strange Trip where Steve Silberman talks about how you know, like in the second sets, like the dead would kind of go to the edge of sanity and like take the audience with them and it would get really, really dark. And then they would inevitably go into like Stella Blue or Morning Dew, you know, like one of these epic battle uh, ballads, you know, like sort of the beauty coming out of the murk, which is what they do in this show, you know, going into Stella Blue out of that, you know, dark jam. And mm-hmm. it's such a cool transition. You know, and it's, you know, such a stock Grateful Dead trick, uh, but it works like so many times and it really works in this set. And Stella Blue, of course, being being one of the new songs at that point, Mm. one of the great, probably the best song on Wake of the Flood, if, you know, either that or Eyes of the World. I mean, those I think are Mm. probably the two best tracks on that record. Yeah. And and I want to make sure we mention in another sort of recurring bit that we might be doing over this series. Uh, so all these Dick's Picks volumes, at least early on, had a little caveat emptor warning label on them, usually to talk about that the sound quality wasn't going to be up to snuff with <laughs> what you would typically hear from a live album of the era. Um, and that would be, what did they, they, the exact phrasing is pretty funny on the first one. They, they mentioned that there are, Various glitches, splices, real changes, and other oral gremlins contained on this said original tape. So, uh, but it's important to note, if you didn't already know this, that this, the first jam, actually, the pre-other one jam, actually cuts out a good four minutes of music, uh, which was the only reason why Phil would allow this to be released is if they cut out a four-minute Phil Lesh bass solo, (laughs) which happens between Nobody's Fault But Mine and the start of that pre-other one jam. Now, if you... Steve mentioned that there's a soundboard on Relisten that is this full show, but I think that section is also cut out of the soundboard, so you actually have to go onto Archive and find the audience tape of this night. And you can listen to this bass solo. And I'm of two minds here. One, I think it kind of sucks. I mean, we've talked about the reasons for like only releasing part of the show and re-scrambling it. And there's probably good reasons, technical and artistically, for doing that. It kind of sucks that Phil is like just cut four minutes out of the middle of this sequence. Like, because, you know, these things are supposed to be like, you know, accurate documents of Grateful Dead history. And just like, you know, chopping out entire minutes of the jam is pretty like over the line, I would say. On the other hand... I like to imagine like, 
I, it's, I was going to say, I, I like to imagine Phil like literally going into the tape with an X-Acto knife and like literally cutting out the tape of like any existing tapes where his bass solo is. Right. Like, he, like he's like he's obsessed, like he has like a stack of tapes in his office at home and he's just like methodically cutting out the bass solos right. out of every tape. Throwing them in the garbage can like, and can throwing in a match. <laughs> exactly. This cannot stand. Right, right. And then he takes the ashes. Yeah. He takes the ashes out to sea, like at the Pacific Ocean, and he dumps the ashes out at sea. Exactly. So that no one will ever find he dumped, the remnants of his bass solo. He serves them in his, uh, you know, like chicken wings at his restaurant <laughs> out there in California. <laughs> no, so... Seasoned with discarded bass solos. Exactly. So I was going to say, like, the... like. Uh, so I, yeah, I was all in a huff and very offended that Phil Esch would do such an awful thing. And then I went and listened to the audience tape and it is like truly a terrible bass solo. <laughs> it is like, it's cool for about a minute. Cause you're like, wow, like Phil's doing some cool bass droney stuff here. This is like, this has got a good vibe to it. And then it just turns into like, like something I would imagine Gene Simmons doing at a Kiss show <laughs> where it's just kind of like, <laughs> like real, like distorted solo bass and like just like totally like wanky in all the ways that like you were saying earlier, like what people think the Grateful Dead sound like. It was like one of those shreds videos, yeah. you know, that were on YouTube or a big thing for a while where it's just like terrible music overdubbed a real live video. Uh, it's bad. It's worth listening to just to I be like, you know, as like a curiosity. Um, but I would absolutely say that the version on Dick's Picks is better and has much better flow because you don't have four minutes of Phil Lesh just kind of like well, jerking off uh, between nobody's fault but mine and another one. I love his playing, but the, 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 the list of bass players that I want to hear play a bass solo is extremely short. Like it's probably like Jacko Pistorius and like maybe like Cliff Burton. And maybe that, that that's probably it. Like, there's not that many bass yeah. solos that you want to hear. But, you know, going back to the sort of historical document aspect of that, it's really easy to lose sight of, like, how unique it is to have a band like the Grateful Dead that is able and willing and, you know, also able to profit from all these people that want to hear this stuff. But, I mean, most bands would never put out this much stuff. And... I actually had this realization when I was listening to that uh, that podcast about fish, Long May They Run, where they were talking about like the early days of like live fish, like when they were selling downloads of their shows and they made a decision early on that they were going to post every show. And they made a point of sort of saying that that was like a big deal for them to agree to do that because like most bands would say like, oh, we played a shitty show, like we're not going to share that with people like you know like we don't want to embarrass ourselves and um obviously on on this record there were pains taken to present the best to, to present the dead in the best light but um there's still a willingness on this band's part to risk embarrassing themselves i think way more than any other band of their stature you know so um, I feel like we can forgive Phil for taking out a bass solo, you know, like because they're giving us a lot. Um, and and you right. can go hear that bass solo if you want to, you know. Um, so you, if you really exactly. need to hear it, you yeah. can hear it. Um, but 
I think it's good to be reminded of that sometimes because like I lose sight of that too. Because there's part of me that would also be like, oh no, just, just release the whole thing. Like why not? But it's mm-hmm. like no band would do that. <laughs> you know, like no band, and especially not in 1993. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then of course at the end of the set, you know you have so you know we have Stella Blue coming out of the Merc, just gorgeous. And then you have around and around, which is a possible bathroom break song, or a possible like if we if we had like a you you want to get to your car, beat yeah, the traffic, it's a beat traffic song. Um, which you know, <laughs> it, I mean, and that was another kind of standard Grateful Dead trick. They would do like sort of like a mind melting jam, then they would do like an epic ballad, and then they would do like the party song at the end, and right. it'd be like around and round yep. or good loving or you know something like or like one more saturday night or something like that sugar mags yeah all the you know it's always a bob song and that's fine because bob is the one you know he's the the one leading the party right he's the one right uh making sure everybody's having a good time and he wants to make sure everybody goes home with a smile on their face and he's gonna play as many chuck berry covers as he needs to do In order uh, to to send everybody home happy, <laughs> so that well, that's one thing you miss with like the restructuring of the show is you miss the the good old like Bobby Chuck Berry bookend. Like it's so right, weird exactly. to me that they would both open and close a show with a Chuck Berry cover, but hey, Chuck Berry is pretty good. So yeah, exactly. Why and, not? and if and if you're in the room, that'd be great. You know, yeah. it would be like, oh yeah you're kind of going through the full spectrum of human emotion there, like from fear to love to like, you know, let's have a party. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the great things about the dead is that they could be spiritual and then also be kind of dumb and fun, you know, and you you get both in the same show. And that's another thing that not a lot of bands give you. You're either getting the art and the very sort of serious thing, or you're getting sort of like the fun arena rock thing. And the dead could give you both. And so you're getting that at the end of this set. So it's like a little bit of everything. That's what makes this this disc so great as Grateful Dead music. Um, so we didn't talk about this before the podcast, but I mean, do we want to give a verdict on each album? Do we want to give stars or like a thumbs up or a thumbs down or like a, you know, a number of like Grateful Dead skulls out of five like for each record. See, so, yeah, I'm throwing this at you. We're jamming right now. Like this was unexpected. This was not planned. But like, do we need to give some sort of like overall assessment of each record? You think? Uh, I would lean no. And you say no? Yeah, I would say no. I, and you know, just for like, you know, <laughs> people who have listened to this for an hour and forty five minutes but don't know who we are because we never really introduced <laughs> who we actually are. Um, I don't know. I've rated a lot of things in my life and I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm tired of rating things and right. like, you'll just have to, uh, if you really want a number, come up with one for yourself based on our two hours of conversation about the show. <laughs> that's a true, that's a true Jerry Garcia answer right there. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to take responsibility. I just, I gave you the music right? and you can decide what to do with it. It's I will in say your that this, I will say that, you know, we're going to talk about some Dick's Picks that I don't really like in, okay. this, in this series. Good. This is one I really, really love. This is like one of my favorites. Yeah. And I have a lot of affection for it. I think it's a great album. It also has a lot of sentimental value for me mm-hmm. just because yeah. of where it fell in sort of my fandom for the Grateful Dead. So I have a lot of appreciation 
for this record. Yeah. Um, we're going to get to so the ones that uh, sort of played that role for me very soon. So uh, this is one I was actually kind of less familiar with. I got to I gotta say, weirdly, I jumped on midstream on the Dick's Picks. So, yeah. But, I mean, I, th- I think people got the sense that I like it a lot. I like 73. I love Keith. I love One Drummer Dead. I wish Donna was there, but it's okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think really it's like the backstory that makes this such an important release to me in a lot of ways too. just like thinking about what Dick Latvala had to go through to even get this series off the ground. And I think as we'll see next episode, what he had to do to keep it going because <laughs> it wasn't, it didn't really have a lot of momentum early on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really good. And I think in a, a hugely important, just live album in the history of live albums uh, for what it represents. Part of the show is the communal experience that we want to share with you, the audience, with exploring these records. So I just want to give a, a, a tip of the cap to our next episode, which will be airing in two weeks. It's going to be, of course, about Dick's Picks Volume 2. It's a show from October 31st, 1971, Halloween 71. It's a very short record. It's about 58 minutes long. A lot was cut out, but the stuff that's in there... Is pretty great, so I'm excited to listen to that. But before that episode, you all should check that out. So you're ready to go, and you're ready to sort of take this journey with us into the Dick's Picks universe. So definitely check out that episode. Uh, actually, check out that record, I should say, before that episode. And we'll all listen to The Grateful Dead together. What could be better than that? Yeah, and presumably by the time this comes out, we'll have some form of social media that you can discuss the show with us uh, if you were there and have crazy archive.org style memories of the show. We would love to hear them. <laughs> or and, if you just uh, want to tell us about buying the record at a disco round and the sun breaking through the clouds as yes. it started. <laughs> and, uh, we'll take that too. And, and my hope is that people uh, that will have our own Dick, the archivist, who will be like uh, bootlegging our podcast and there will be Dick's Picks versions of our podcast that people will be trading on the internet. And, uh, you know, because there's lots of stuff that we don't put into this into this podcast, as hard as it might be to, be, to believe. Uh, right. That <laughs> would that be Dick's Dick's Picks Picks? That'd yeah, maybe. I don't right? know. It would, it would have to be a dick, I guess. So if there's I mean, any dicks out there who want to step up, send, us, like a, our, send us a message. I mean, our field recordings are pretty raw, man. We're not doing much editing here. There's no overdubs, really. I'm not like, you know, my vocals are like straight live. I'm not like going in the studio after we record this to like make sure that I'm taking out all like my lip licking sounds and throat sounds and, uh, 
all my off key notes. But you know, well, I I do want everybody uh-oh. to know that I did play a six minute bass solo in the middle of this conversation, and if it's not there, it's all Steve's fault. Yeah, so you made me take you, it out. You, yeah, you're gonna want to go on the internet and find like the unedited version of this podcast to find that Rob bass solo. I I tried to talk you out of it, but then at around minute three, I was enjoying uh, the spirit of it. I I, I was like, keep going. Like I thought yeah. about stopping you, but I'm like, no, keep going. I like this. Yeah. I was feeling this through. What can I say? (laughs) Got to push it to the brink. Um, All right, guys. Well, well, thank you all for listening to our first episode. Uh, I think it went well. It's only going to get better from here, right? Right, Rob? I think it's going to get better from here. All right, guys. Only going to get better. (laughs) All right, guys. We'll talk to you later. Take it easy. All right. See you later. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit one million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top 5% of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode and don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. 
the only podcast you crank up to 11. 